0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times.
1: Hi, I'm Audrey Tan for The Straits Times in Green Pulse, a Straits Times podcast on environmental issues. And today, my guest is Mr. Rodney Martinez, International Director at the Ecuador-based International Research Centre on El Nino. So today we're going to be discussing this climate phenomenon, El Nino. For those of you in Singapore, you would remember the 2015-2016 episode which caused the region in Southeast Asia to suffer the longest and the worst haze episode on record. Rodney, maybe you could start by just giving us a brief introduction to what El Nino is.
0: El Nino is a global disruption when the, the typical circulation of winds along the tropical Pacific Ocean is really affected. It begins to change. And suddenly, the direction of the winds just reversed. So that is connected with several changes in the ocean temperature in the tropical Pacific. And after this process started, there is something called a coupling between the ocean and the atmosphere. So the atmosphere just uh, increased or helped to the ocean to change. And the ocean helped the atmosphere to change, creating a phenomenon called El Niño that the manifestations of the abnormal warming in the tropical Pacific and this abnormal circulation of the trade winds in the tropical Pacific affect to all the world, especially because these affections, these different disruptions are propagated to the different continents, affecting Latin America, affecting Asia, Oceania, and Africa. This is called teleconnections. So these are remote effects of what happens in the tropical Pacific affecting the climate in most of the world.
1: So for us in the maritime continent, in countries like Singapore and Indonesia, the impacts of El Nino would be the movement of rain clouds away from our region. So we have less rain, droughts in fact, and also a much hotter weather. But you have mentioned about how El Nino has such a wide footprint. So what actually happens across the Pacific Ocean, far away from us?
0: Well, normally what happens is that the, the warm pool that normally is very close in the maritime continent in, in, with El Niño conditions moves to the eastern Pacific and between the central and eastern Pacific. So this warm pool is associated with also with trade winds that really help to the convection and the rainfall to happen in several places in Latin America. But this change also affects to other parts in Latin America causing droughts. So you have countries like Ecuador and Peru which experiences heavy rainfall. Paraguay, which is in the middle of South America, also experiences heavy rainfall. But other regions like, for example, the northern South America coast, the Caribbean coast of South America, Venezuela, Colombia, experiences dry conditions during this time.
1: So what is the significance of these impacts? In Southeast Asia, the haze caused, exacerbated by El Nino, actually resulted in a lot of economic damages. Lives were lost, planes were grounded.
0: What about in Latin America? Well, yes, El Niño is for Latin America one of the main climate hazards and it's very popular and highly political sensitive because of its impacts. Just to mention an example in Ecuador... The 97-98 El Niño caused $2.80 billion of damage and more than 300 persons killed because El Niño. So one of the main causes for massive immigration from Ecuadorians to other parts of the world because the crisis which was generated by El Niño with other factors in that time.
1: So I understand that El Nino is associated with the warm pool in the Western Pacific moving over to the Eastern Pacific, and that affects the fisheries also along the South American coast?
0: Yes, of course. As you know, the Eastern Pacific region is one of the main fisheries of the world because the Humboldt current system and all the productivity because the upwelling, which is caused by trade winds here in the coast of Peru, Ecuador, Chile, and, uh, when El Niño comes and these warm waters invades all the Eastern Pacific, really there is a significant impact in fisheries, a movement of the species to other places, and that impacts definitely to this industry.
1: When we were in the Galapagos Islands recently, we also saw how increased rain could lead to the spread of invasive species that would affect terrestrial ecosystems. But are there also impacts on human lives in terms of pathogens and disease?
0: Well, yes. One of the main problems with El Niño is the heavy rainfall, the floods destroyed many of the basic infrastructure in the cities, especially in the small ones. In the small ones, the sanitation infrastructure is destroyed and is affected, severely disrupted. The water supply also is interrupted. And all these factors added to the environmental conditions, humidity, high temperature, etc., are the best scenario for rising of uh, epidemias and vectors, uh, dengue, cholera, malaria, paludism, etc., and others related with um, stomach diseases. So it's really a health problem that was managed in the past but overpassed the capacities of the local populations and the countries in general.
1: Now, if you like our conversation-style podcast so far... Do subscribe to the Straits Times podcast on Apple's iTunes or on Google Podcasts, or even on Spotify, and like us and give us a rating. Now, back to our conversation with Mr. Rodney Martinez, International Director at the Ecuador-based International Research Centre on El Nino. So, Rodney, would you be able to talk about how lessons or El Nino events can help us learn more about climate change? I mean, especially since El Nino events have been happening long before humans started affecting the environment. Is there anything that we can learn from this?
0: Yes, definitely we have to learn from the past. And one of the main lessons is that we have to prevent. All the international agenda aims to and try to help us to understand that we have to prevent the risk. We have to work in advance. And we have to really abandon the reactive mode for the emergencies. That means better planning, better risk management and intersectoral coordination, better governance that is aware about how we can really prevent the risk and not create more risk because bad buildings, because not technical land use. And we have to prevent the population with education and awareness because we need to act in the in, before the things happen. And if we can... We will be able to do that. We are in better position to really prepare, be prepared for all the effects of the climate change, like the extreme events that are happening now and will happen more frequently in the future.
1: So also, can you share a bit more about the importance of adaptation? What are some crucial key factors to look at when we talk about adaptation?
0: Well, I think for adaptation, one of the main challenges here in Latin America is the harmonization of agendas. We need to understand that real risk management is not something different from adaptation, risk management is part of the adaptation efforts and we really need to change some current structures, some current ways to think and act in order to have an adaptation that enable us to to really cope with the changing climate and, of course, the global change, which is also part of the challenge that the development faces. So I think the need is to really work together and avoid to have different agendas and different institutional frameworks for risk management and climate change issues because are part of the same.
1: So can you talk a bit more about the importance of involving the communities affected by all these impacts? into the planning. Like earlier you mentioned about bottom-up approach. Can you share more about that?
0: Yeah. Risk management and adaptation are social constructions that should be designed, co-designed with the local actors. We cannot continue conceiving the, na- the adaptation and risk management from the national perspective of like just a national thing. The realisation of risk management and, and adaptation is doing locally. So we need to really enable spaces of dialogue when the community be an active participant and help to co-design the solutions for their territories, their communities, because they are part of the solution also. We have to avoid and disappear the up to bottom approach and do the the reverse. And working with the people in the territory at the very local level, we will have contributors to the holistic risk management and adaptation.
1: Would you be able to talk about why it's important to get the communities involved, especially in Latin America, you know, the land area is so big, there must be variations in the kinds of climate impacts experienced in the region, right?
0: Yes, because when we involve the communities, we're taking in account their experience, their ancestral knowledge, their understanding of their territorial problems and challenges, and of course, with them and with some assistance, we can build the solutions with them because they will be the key elements of the solutions. And of course, to promote the ownership the ownership of what happens the early warning system, the communitarian information systems, etc. And finally, to extend, to help in the information chain from the national and global sources, etc., to the final users, to the end users that are really in the last mile. We experienced in 2015-2016 the lack of information of the last mile. The most vulnerable communities didn't learn about El Niño was happening. And this is not fair in the current time when we have so technological advantage and resources to share.
1: So here at the centre, one of the adaptation strategies being promoted would be ecosystem-based adaptation. Can you share more with our audience about what that is exactly?
0: One of the elements of the vulnerability is the environmental. The environmental implies the integrity of the ecosystems. If we have degraded ecosystems in some place, this place is more vulnerable to climate effects. So uh, that's the key reason. But there are another connected with that: is the well-being of the communities is related with the natural resources access, water especially, and food supply, and all are related with healthy and very good quality ecosystem services. And we can have that. We have these ecosystems well preserved, well preserved and well managed. We have to have this kind of ecosystem approaches because in the adaptation efforts, the conservation of these key ecosystems are essential. And if we can promote more green solutions to this, it's better than promote grey solutions or big infrastructures that are really expensive, are not sustainable, and not necessarily are really helping to the essential, which is the conservation of natural resources.
1: So the conservation of natural resources would definitely benefit communities that live off the land. But there are also other kinds of ecosystem services that would benefit people who live far away in cities as well, right?
0: Well, yes. For example, the big cities that are receiving the food supply from the farmers, which are in rural areas, if the ecosystems are in good health, they will provide a natural control for place and they will reduce the uses of chemical products that affect the health of the consumers which are in the city. So it's a a really change of benefits that should be supported by the citizens in the big capitals, big cities.
1: Can you also talk about how mangroves can reduce wave action or preservation of the mountain vegetation can reduce landslides?
0: Yes, for example, uh, we are living here in the Andean region. The Andes are a key part of our geography. And on the slides that we have, the preservation of the different kind of forests, natural forest preservation, the need to have a balance between the uh, agricultural frontier and the forest, natural forest, is essential because to fix the soil and to avoid or at least to reduce the risk of landslides. That's a natural thing. If we take the vegetal coverage of the slides in the Cordillera with other, other crops, etc., we are reducing the capacity to retain the soil and the water with heavy precipitation. So the risk of landslides and and a lot of deaths increases with this bad practice of land use. We have a recent example in Colombia with 40 people killed because of a severe landsliding in Rosas in Valle del Cauca last week. That's because the severity of the rainfall plus unstable slides with loss of, of vegetation. That is the perfect storm and that causes a lot of deaths every year in our region.
1: Thank you, Rodney, for joining us on the show. So, well, that's a wrap for this Green Pulse episode on El Nino and climate change. Do subscribe to the Straits Times podcast on Apple's iTunes or on Google Podcast, or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcasts at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.